Well, welcome to Proverbs, uh, the how-to guide for life decisions. I'm very glad to have you on board for this class. Uh, my name is Doug Taylor, and the very first thing that I would like to do is to thank you for your time. Uh, I know what it's like to sit through classes. I've sat through many in my lifetime, uh, and want to assure you that I'm, I'm very committed to make our time together well worth your while. And some of the benefits that you can derive from the study of Proverbs are these. First of all, you can learn over time how to make decisions rationally. Uh, we all, uh, I think, uh, think that we do that, and hopefully many of us try to do that. The study of Proverbs actually uh, teaches you some important skills in, uh, in how to do that. Along with that, you can learn how to analyze a problem. Uh, not just a Torah analysis problem, but problems in everyday life and working with other people, relationship issues, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, you'll come to understand through the study of Proverbs the important difference between making decisions with your intellect versus making decisions with your emo versus making decisions with your emotions. Uh, and over time, uh, and particularly with enough review, uh, the ideas that we discuss can really begin to affect uh, each of us and the way we run our lives. And, and it does that without us having to force it or necessarily even consciously make it happen, but just by being engaged with the ideas and going over them, they start to affect us. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, water dripping on a rock. After a while, it begins to dent the rock. Uh, and so these ideas have the ability to uh, to be able to affect us. Uh, just a word about logistics. Um, as we'll discuss in a moment, this is a very interactive class, and you have two ways that you can interact. Uh, you can actually use the microphone. If you have a microphone hooked up to your computer, uh, just click on the little microphone icon uh, at the lower left part of the screen, and if I'm talking, a little thought bubble will show up next to your name, uh, indicating to me that you would like to speak, and I'll turn the microphone off, and you'll automatically then be able to uh, go ahead and talk. Once you get done, if you would click that microphone button again, then that lets the next person speak. Uh, the way this technology is set up, only one of us can speak at a time. You may be familiar with this from having attended other Noahide Nations classes. Um, so we need to click that microphone on and off. And feel free to, to use that. I'll keep an eye on that and the names. So if you ever want to make a comment, uh, just click that button and I'll see that and release the microphone. You can also type in comments, uh, as we've done, you know, just getting warmed up uh, in our greetings uh, for this class. What I also will probably do, uh, just to warn you so you don't think it's redundant, uh, if comments are typed in, I will likely repeat them back because this class is being recorded uh, and people who get the recording later on and aren't part of the class won't be able to see the visual part of it. Uh, so I want to repeat that back so they can understand uh, the context of any questions being asked. To give you a little bit of background, uh, I've had the privilege of studying with a number of uh, rabbinic scholars over the years, including a gentleman named Rabbi Morton Moskowitz, who is the Rosh Yeshiva of Northwest Yeshiva High School in the Pacific Northwest, and formerly on the faculty at Yeshiva B'nai Torah in Far Rockaway, New York. Rabbi Moskowitz is a specialist and an expert in the study of Proverbs. 
and he started teaching me this very important material about 20 years ago uh, he'd been studying it you know uh, for I don't know how many years before that and we've been learning together uh, ever since uh, and you might think well gee don't you ever get done with this I mean 20 years is a long time to study a book but that's one of the beauties uh, of the Torah and Tanakh that there is uh, virtually an endless depth of wisdom available to us and we keep learning new things and uh, discovering new things and clarifying ideas uh, in a way that's very satisfying and very enlightening uh, and I can tell you from first-hand personal experience that the study of this amazing book can change your thinking process and it can change your life and it certainly has changed mine this class, and I venture to say the entire approach to Torah learning, rests on a principle that has just been sort of recently rediscovered, if you will, or perhaps re-emphasized. Um, it started with a guy, as I understand, named Georgi Lazanov, a Bulgarian gentleman, back in the 1980s. Uh, and Lazanov's claim to fame was that he could teach an average adult to master a foreign language in something like eight hours, which is an amazingly short time, even by today's modern educational standards. And Lazanov had figured out uh, what you could call a whole brain concept to learning that involved Baroque music and suggestology and a number of different things. But one of the basic tenets uh, that he came up with, which is a basic tenet of the Torah learning process and has been for hundreds of years, is uh, this word, which I will uh, type into the screen for you. It's the word participation. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, each please, to type in the word participation uh, in the text box right now, uh, just very quickly, if you would. The word participation. And thank you, Diane. And thank you, Rena. Appreciate that. So now let me ask you, can you guess why I asked you to do that? And Diane, perfect. Thank you. Absolutely. Rena, you're both right on target. To get you to participate. It's kind of muscle memory. And, and part of the reason for that is that we have a, uh, uh, I guess, a, a, something of a cultural mindset, I think, in, in our society that uh, we don't necessarily get ourselves too involved in a learning process, but we're generally used to uh, sitting down and having someone tell information to us. But participation in almost any activity is how we learn it. If you think about ice skating for a minute, uh, if you uh, watch a, uh, uh, or listen to a, a famous figure skater give a lecture on ice skating, and you aren't an ice skater, I would venture to say that our chances of being able to ice skate well after we listen to that lecture are probably not very good. Because what we have to do is we have to go down to the ice rink and we have to strap on the skates and uh, stumble out on the ice and try to kind of balance ourselves, push off, uh, probably fall, get up again, push off some more, probably fall again, and go through that process in order to learn how to ice skate. 
Well, the same is true with understanding how a proverb works uh, and how to analyze it. We have to be uh, engaged in that process. It's not a case of just getting content. Uh, getting content will help, but the real part of the real value of this is actually being involved uh, in, in that analysis process. Now, the, the book of Proverbs, which is called Mishle in Hebrew, was written by King Solomon, uh, the wisest man who ever lived. And it is a training manual for character growth and practical decision-making. Uh, most people tend to operate on the basis of their personality, which developed mostly in childhood. In fact, I understand that studies have been done where they interviewed kids at seven years old and then every seven years uh, thereafter until about age 49 and sort of monitored their, their progress. And their personalities did not change over that time. The study of Proverbs and the study of Mishlei can allow you to get above your personality without changing it. That is, you can make decisions sort of over and above your personality. And the way that Mishlei does this is by presenting you with many, many individual cases that help train you to think correctly. Uh, if we're aware of the emotions that affect our thinking process, then we can avoid making mistakes. And importantly, we don't normally have to undo the emotions, we just need to be aware of them. So by reviewing the ideas of Mishlei over and over, and looking at many different cases and many things from different angles, the ideas begin to affect us, and then we begin making decisions in accordance with those ideas. I understand that uh, General uh, George Patton, uh, famous for his role in the Second World War, studied every battle that he could get his hands on. Not to memorize what happened, but by the time you immerse yourself in battle after battle and, and uh, strategy after strategy, pretty soon this stuff starts to affect your thinking. And you can uh, then, you know, automatically uh, start inculcating those ideas into the particular battle situation that you might find yourself in. A real key theme that we will find in the book of Mishlei is that you have your intellect and your emotions. Two things, intellect and emotions. And the question is, which one will we use to make our decisions in life. Now I would submit to you that in our societies that I've observed, most people make decisions on the basis of emotions. For example, somebody goes out to buy a car and they come back and tell us about it later and say, oh, I just fell in love with that, uh, the car that I bought. And oh, by the way, uh, you know, it was number three in the J.D. Power survey for good you know, customer service. Well, what often happens there is that we go out, we look at the cars, we are attracted by one with nice lines and a pretty color, and gee, it's got a nice leather interior, and so we buy it. Uh, or at that point, after our emotions have already really decided that we want that car, then we go look and try to find some information to support that decision. Because, you know, people often have information that supports their decisions which they generated after their mind had kind of already made up that they wanted that particular thing. The opposite approach might be to decide, well, I guess I need a, I need a car. Why do I need a car? Well, I need to get to work. And the bus line doesn't, doesn't get me there. 
okay, what kind of a car do I need? Well, I need only a car really that seats two people because I never go to work with anybody and I don't have any kids and so I only need to take my spouse somewhere. Uh, I want something that is very safe, gets good gas mileage, uh, has a good safety rating, uh, is going to hold up, uh, is well crafted, and I really only want to spend about uh, $10,000. And so then I might go out and try to find what cars will meet those criteria, not what color it is, which is a, a side benefit or some of the other things, but what cars meet my basic criteria. Maybe it's a used car instead of a new car. That would probably be a more rational uh, way to go about that and use our intellect to drive what's the car really for and why would I use it. As we go through Michelet, we'll find, and we're going to start with chapter 10, uh, that most of the verses deal with a single case. It's a contrast either between, say, good and evil, or a wise person and a fool, or the righteous and the wicked. And our mission is to try to understand what each verse is telling us. In other words, what message is King Solomon trying to get across to us? And the way we'll do that is this. Concepts and theories and ideas and definitions are all abstracted from a certain subject that you have in front of you. In other words, we pull out or abstract the ideas from the specific cases that we're seeing. And, and our minds tend to naturally do this. For example, most people will give you causes of why things happen. For example, uh, you get a cold. Somebody says, well, you, did, you got a cold because you didn't wear your raincoat during a storm, or you didn't take enough vitamin C, or you stayed up all night, uh, you know, partying with friends and didn't get enough sleep. People tend to think in terms of causes, and then they give reasons or principles or concepts for the different things or the phenomenon that they're looking at. And we see this all the time in, in society. Um, some of the really funny ones are in the uh, in the financial press. For example, you, you look at a newspaper or some of the internet sites, and the editors will try to sum up the reason for a large stock market move with a single short sentence, like, stocks drop on oil worries. As if they can sum up the entire psychological makeup and decision-making process of tens of thousands of people in one five-word phrase. But people do that, and they will apply uh, cause and effect, where cause and effect doesn't necessarily happen. Uh, I mean, one of the, the sort of uh, most humorous and crazy examples of that is red trucks cause fires, because every time you go to a big fire, there's always a red truck there, so it must be the red truck that caused it. Uh, the difference between most people and a scientist is that the scientist works on perfecting that part of the mind that clarifies definitions and cause and effect. So that's what we propose to do in this class. Uh, now, King Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 4, that Proverbs is really for beginners. Um, he has a, a, a statement that's going on for a number of verses, but in verse 4 it says, to give acumen to the simple, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. So this is our opportunity as beginners 
to learn uh, from this man's great wisdom. And a proverb is a statement of a certain fact about life. And then what we're going to try to do is abstract the concept out of that as to how it really works. Uh, this is the same kind of thing that a theorist does in physics or math or virtually any other science. They observe a phenomenon and then they try to uh, abstract a principle from that. And we're doing that about life. We just happen to have a different subject than uh, a physicist or a, a mathematician might use. Uh, an example of this is, you, you know, we're familiar with Newton, watched things fall and postulated the concept of gravity. Uh, and it's the same thing if we want to know how God operates in the world. We read the Chumash, the written Torah. And it's not just to remember this or that story, but the idea for us is to abstract the concepts out of how God operates in certain situations and how he relates to us in certain situations. I might point out as an interesting uh, related point here that there are really only two things that we can know about God. Just two. The first is, we can know what he is not. I mean, it's not hard to prove that God is not a rock, and God is not a chair, and God is not a cup of hot chocolate. Um, the second thing is that we can know about how God relates to the world. And we do that through this method of abstracting concepts of how God operates in certain situations and how he relates to the world in certain situations. So this method becomes very important if we're going to study Torah and understand what God's trying to get across to us. And we have to be very precise in this so that we don't make mistakes. Because if we make a mistake, then that means we made a mistake about God or about how God relates to the world. For example, if you, if you make a mistake in ethics, then you're going to run your life in an incorrect manner. And by definition, you'll have to fail in at least some respect. Because if you're not operating in accordance with the way the world was created, uh, then you're going to have a problem eventually. So, to get the most out of this class, I would encourage you to look ahead to the verse or verses that will likely cover the following week and work on them to see what you think they're saying. And then we can analyze and discuss that the following week. Um, if you don't do that, you'll still get a benefit by participating, but you'll get more if you already wrestled a little bit with the ideas. Uh, and then in the class we can uh, discuss uh, the meaning that we uh, extract out of the, the verse and any mistakes uh, that we have made uh, along the way. In this way, we end up learning two things. We learn methodology, and we also learn content. And slowly but surely, uh, then we learn how to analyze a proverb, and from there, then we can build up to other areas of Torah, but at the beginning, we need to learn the method. Now, one of the key aspects of the method, and one of the most important lessons that I have ever learned in my studies with the rabbi over 20 years, is to learn to, and it's just two words, to ask questions. Ask questions. Now, you could say, well, gee, Doug, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? I mean, everybody knows that, don't they? Well, let's find out. 
Think about every class you've ever taken since, say, uh, junior high or high school up till now. Uh, this could include junior high, high school, college, community college, university, evening classes, business seminars, luncheon speakers, church classes, vocational school, any time you have gone to a class to learn something. If you figure that on average there are 30 students in the room and there's one instructor giving some kind of a lecture or demonstration okay if you were to take all those classes in your mind in your experience and lump them all together sort of compress them down into one prototypical class 30 students one instructor in your experience on average how many students will ask questions out of the 30 who are there? Just on average, what's your experience? How many people out of 30 in a classroom will ask questions? Okay, Diane, thank you. 10%, that would be 3. Rena, good, thank you. 1 to 2. Okay. Gisela, good to see you. 3 to 4, okay. And Sue, welcome. You can uh, you can mark comments in by just typing them in in the text box, or if you want to speak, feel free to click on the microphone icon uh, down in the lower left corner of your screen. And so we've got an average here of one. Uh, I've got one answer of three, one of one to two, and one of three to four. Okay. Very good. I've asked this question to lots of different audiences, and uh, to the best of my recollection, with possibly only one exception, I have never... The most common answer I get is two. And I don't believe, except for perhaps one group, I've ever had a group articulate a number greater than five. And that's out of 30 students. Now, does that mean that in all those classes all the relevant questions were asked and there just weren't any any questions left? I would submit that's not the case. I would submit to you that in our society we are taught a particular protocol and that is come in, sit down, take notes, and be quiet. Okay, if you want to ask one or two questions that might be okay, but try going somewhere and asking a lot of questions. You may be considered disruptive or someone with attention deficit disorder who needs a prescription drug because we're just not used to that style of learning in our society. Uh, and Diane, you make a great point. Many are afraid to ask uh, questions. We're not encouraged to ask questions because I will tell you it's much easier if you're a teacher or a lecturer to stand up and just talk as an authority and have no one question you than to have someone pose questions that you might not be able to answer. Um, and so, and Diane, yes, you're, you're pointing out that in one class you ask and you end up doing a special report for the class. So we're not exactly, you know, encouraged in our society to do that. It's much safer to be quiet. But I would suggest to you that questions are how we find the truth. We have to learn to ask questions and we have to ask lots of them. Uh, and in our society, we're often in a rush to get answers. 
But we need to hone that skill of asking questions first. In fact, the questions may be more important than the answers because the questions lead to other questions which lead to other questions which can open up whole new vistas of knowledge that we wouldn't have seen had we just been in a rush to find answers. Uh, Edward de Bono, who has written a number of uh, books on thinking skills, made an interesting comment in one of the books. He said, people think so they don't have to think. And then he proceeded to explain what he meant by that, which is that when people see a particular set of facts, they will think about it until they come up with an explanation, and then they'll stop thinking about it. They won't necessarily say, well, that's one possible explanation. What other possible explanations could there be? But as soon as they find something that will meet the facts, then they'll stop thinking about it. But we need to to keep pressing and keep searching and hone that skill because uh, that is what can get us to learn. And interestingly, in our society, we also run up against another difficulty, and that is, to some degree, and particularly in some realms, to question is considered an attack. Sometimes to question is considered an attack. And that tends to make people defensive. I mean, if a lecturer, uh, you can imagine in in a number of uh, perhaps church environments, uh, if a a pastor were giving a sermon, and in the middle of it I held up my hand and said, excuse me, but, you know, didn't what you just said contradict something that uh, was said, you know, ten minutes ago? And how do we reconcile these two different points? I would guess that a number of people would be aghast that I would stand up and do that, and probably uh, it's possible the lecturer or instructor uh, might feel, gee, this guy's trying to attack me just because he's asking the question for clarification. Um, questions can be used as weapons, uh, and there's a time and a place for using them as a weapon or using them as an instrument of learning, uh, but it's important that we learn how to do that. And even if we can't answer the questions, we want to learn how to ask them because they will be the guide. Uh, and we want to avoid that tendency to want to jump uh, to the answer. Uh, if you ask one question, someone else asks another question, uh, and, and everybody gets them on on the table, that can open up whole, uh, whole new areas, and getting those questions down is a major step in our learning process. A true solution will answer all of the questions. So when we wonder sometimes, well, how do I know if something is, is true? Well, if, it, if I have an answer that has answered all the questions that I have around that particular topic, then uh, I, I'm, I'm done. Uh, until then, I may have some questions that will take me a little while to answer. There was one uh, gentleman I know of, uh, recall hearing about in the uh, Talmud, who it took him over 20 years to get an answer to a particular question. That's a long time to hang on to a question. Uh, but it's not so important that we get all the answers. We want to be engaged in the process. The other thing is that we always want to look for any inconsistency or anything that isn't clear and raise that uh, as a question. Uh, It's an interesting thing to do in the middle of political campaigns when people make statements that sound really, really good, but if you take the statement you actually analyze what did they really say um, and what, what is clear and what isn't clear, it can raise lots and lots of questions. So that's the methodology and the approach uh, that we, we intend to use as we go 
through our study of Mishlei. Any questions up to this point? Okay. Well, if you do, again, uh, type them in or just uh, click on the microphone icon. So let's begin. Uh, and we're going to start with chapter 10 of Proverbs. And the verse, first verse in chapter 10 is verse 1. And it reads, The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Let me read it one more time. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. So, what are the questions? What questions can we ask around that verse? What isn't clear? What don't we understand? What isn't obvious? What kinds of questions can we ask? This is the part where I stop talking and you get a chance to either talk or type. Okay, Gisela, great question. Uh, why does it state the Proverbs of Solomon? Because isn't the book written by Solomon? Very good. Go ahead, Rena. Um, it seems like the father gets the credit for the, for the good kid, and the mother gets the blame for the bad kid. <laughs> so, I guess it's more of a statement than a question, but there must be a, an explanation for that. You are absolutely right, and that's a very, very good observation. Looks like, you know, dad gets the credit if the kid turns out well, and mom gets the blame if the kid doesn't turn out well. Very good point. That's a good question, and we'll want to understand uh, why that is. Any other questions? Thank you, Rena. I appreciate that. Okay, let me let me add a couple. Uh, first of all, just a, a little bit of a variation on Gisela's question. And Gisela, please correct me if I am not pronouncing your name correctly. Um, the verse starts out with the words, the Proverbs of Solomon. Thank you. Uh, we're into the tenth chapter of this book. When do you see a place where an author writes a book and puts the title of the book at the beginning of the 10th chapter? 10th chapter? What, what are those words doing there? What's the purpose of them? So there's a question, Gisela's question. Then Rena's question. It says, A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Okay. Well, why couldn't it be the other way around? Why not a wise son makes a mother glad, and a foolish son is the grief of his father? In fact, why doesn't it just say that a wise son makes glad parents, 
but a foolish son makes grievous parents. Why did King Solomon use that particular juxtaposition in this verse? <clears throat> then I have two more questions. It says a wise son. What is wise? What is the definition of a wise son? <clears throat> and then for the second half, what's the definition of a foolish son? <coughs> so we've got a couple, we've got kind of four major questions laid out here. What are the first words doing there? Why the juxtaposition of father and mother with wise son versus foolish son? What's the definition of wise? What's the definition of foolish? Are there any other questions that we would have around this verse, or does that pretty much cover it? Okay, and Diane, you wrote one who listens and obeys and one who does not listen and does what he wants to. Okay, so it sounds like you're going for, for a definition of, of wise and foolish. But before we get there, before we start trying to answer, let's see if we make sure that we're comfortable that we've got all the questions on the table. Are there any others that anyone could think of that you would want to include? And Rena, I'll give you just a second to finish what you're writing. Okay, so you, you're going to put out a couple of uh, a couple of answers there for uh, wise and fool. Okay, so let's assume now we have all the questions on the table. And I was going to ask you which ones you wanted to start with, but I see two of you are focusing on the what's wise and what's foolish. So let's let's start there and uh, and deal with those. So uh, Diane, you have one who listens and obeys. Let's just take one at a time. So let's start with wise. Uh, and so Diane has suggested a wise person is one who listens and obeys, uh, and. Rena, you've suggested a wise person is one who's spiritually aware. So I'm going to ask each of you kind of a, a clarifying question there. Diane, when you say listens and obeys, it would have to be listens and obeys to what or to who because there could be people giving out, you know, good information or not good information. And Rena, I would ask you to... Um, Elaborate just a little bit on when you say spiritually aware. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you're you're meaning by that? Because I'm not sure what that means. Okay, so Diane, you're suggesting that a person would be wise if they listen to a to Torah, parents, and all adults, and I would ask you to consider do you really mean all adults because there are some adults out there with some really bad ideas probably one of our most notorious was Hitler uh, how would we distinguish between a wise person who's being listening to you know different kinds of people 
And Gisela, you've said wise one who hears experience from others and learns to avoid making the same mistakes. Okay, very good. Uh, Gisela, how do you use the mic? You click the little microphone icon uh, in the lower left corner of your screen, and it's, a, it's an on-off, and you've done that. Okay, I will click it now and release the mic. Uh, and then you can, uh, you'll be able to speak. And then once you're done, if you would click it again, that will release it so that uh, someone else can. So, Gisela, if you want to go ahead and, uh, if you wanted to say something, you're welcome to just go ahead and click that microphone icon. Okay. And Diane, you've you've suggested that those people who are uh, adults who live Torah. Okay, good. So we're making a distinction now uh, there, and. Rena, you're bringing up uh, spiritually minded as more interested in the soul realm rather than the physical world. Okay. Uh, okay, Gisela, I understand that. And our, Rena, you're mentioning uh, people who are focused on God's teaching. Okay. So these are good, and they're getting to uh, different ways to look at what wisdom is. I'd like to suggest a. Um, a couple of real-life examples, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take three. Think about um, people who smoke versus who do not smoke, given that it's pretty clear that smoking is detrimental to your health. Think about uh, people who drag race through a residential neighborhood versus those who don't. And think about someone who is really angry with their boss and wants to tell him off. Or someone who chooses not to. Now, in each of those cases, what would you say that a wise person does versus a foolish person? we got smoking, drag racing through a residential neighborhood and telling off your boss when you're angry with him. What would a wise person do versus a foolish person. Okay, Diane, good. Makes a decision based on their intellect. Good. Rena, you said wise don't do it. Okay, and the foolish person does. Okay. And there's a there's a, a distinction here that I want to suggest to you. And this was a definition that was introduced to me uh, in the very first class I ever had in Proverbs, which happened to be about this verse. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz suggested a definition which we distilled down into uh, wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. Wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. The wise person looks at the long-term consequences of his actions and acts accordingly. So he says, gee, I really would like to smoke, but I also see that I will probably get lung cancer and have a really horrible death, so I won't do that. Uh, the teenager with his driver's license says, yeah, I'd really love to show off my hot car through this residential neighborhood, but I would exceed the speed limit, could get a ticket, and might hurt or kill uh, you know, a small child, so I won't do that. Uh, the person who wants to tell their boss off when they're angry with them, you know, the motion is there, he really made me mad by that thing he did, but I realize if I do that, 
it's probably going to have a detrimental effect on my employment future and I'm probably going to make a big mess that I'm going to have to go clean up and since I'd rather not do that I'm going to put a leash on my anger and you know go outside and run around the block or you know pound my my hands into sand or do something and and get that out a different way rather than tell my boss off. So this whole process is somewhat like the game of chess. You have to be able to look ahead many moves and see what could happen based on what you're about to do now. I mean, it might feel really good for a moment if I tell my boss off, but do I really want the long-term consequences of you know, what that'll do to my career future and maybe getting fired and, and so forth. This definition is very, very important, and this is a fundamental uh, idea of Michelet, the idea of looking at consequences. Michelet is a very, very practical book. It's all about practical living, uh, and this can really transform your life if you see it and apply it. Again, wisdom being the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. So there's two things that happen there. First of all, I have to see them. So I have to train myself to look ahead at the actions that I'm thinking about doing to see what are the consequences of those actions. And then I have to have enough sort of control over myself to force myself to act on the basis of those consequences. If I see a brand new sports car that I really like, but it costs, you know, $5,000 more than my budget, and a car that costs 5000 less would work just fine for me, but gee, I really love the lines and the, the sleek look and the color and the leather interior of that more expensive car, I have to kind of grab myself by the nap of the neck and say, look, you don't have the 5000 Yeah, you could go get a loan, but you don't want to be paying off a car, and you need that money for something else that's important in your life, so stick with the one that does what you need it to do. Don't get sucked in by your emotions. I have to have the ability to act on that basis. So there's those two things, the ability to see the consequences and the ability uh, to act on them. So then... That raises the the uh, the question, if that's our definition of wise, what about a fool? How would we define a fool? Any thoughts? I define it as the opposite of the wise person or wise son. That's very good. It, a fool is essentially the opposite of a wise person. Uh, thanks, Gisela. And Rena, go ahead. A fool might see the consequences, but he doesn't act on them. He doesn't see. And it's a very good point. And Rena, as we go through the study of this, we will find that there are different types of fools. Uh, and you have very uh, appropriately described one of them. Uh, a fool might see the consequences, but they won't act on them. And then there are, I think, some other types of fools who won't even manage to see the consequence part. 
but either way, they're not going to take the, uh, the appropriate action. A fool makes decisions on the basis of his emotions, and those emotions attach to the particulars uh, of a situation. Uh, so in different situations, he might make uh, an opposite decision. Uh, because he's only looking at the particulars uh, in a given case, not at the overall situation. He's very short-term focused. Um, and uh, as, as we just discussed, there are different types of fools. One type who has emotions that don't uh, allow him to accept any type of truth that runs against his emotions. Uh, sometimes people feel they can educate a fool. But if you're up against a kind of person who cannot accept any type of truth that runs against their emotions, then you may be completely wasting your time trying to educate a person like that. And it's important to be able to define when an emotion in a person is so strong that you can't help them. Because then you'll just be bumping up against a brick wall uh, trying to move them. Some people who are in a foolish situation, uh, which we probably all are to some degree, uh, you know, we can we can learn and we can accept an idea and, and uh, uh, go from there. Uh, others, it may not be possible uh, uh, to do that. Uh, if you're talking to someone about a subject, uh, whether it's religion or politics or whatever, and the person is so entrenched in their belief about the subject that they cannot consider another possibility, then you're probably wasting your time. Uh, this is a very interesting thing about the idea of belief, um, that uh, y you cannot debate a belief. Uh, when, when someone says, yes, I see all the facts about a situation, but I believe X, Y, or Z, then really all debate stops, uh, because there's, there's nowhere you can take that. Um, and so it's why it, that's why it's important to be able to define when an emotion within a person is so strong uh, that you can't help them. I mean, to take an extreme case, if somebody, if you were all standing around looking at a car and the car was blue, and and three of you said, "Yeah, that's a blue car," and the fourth person said, "You know, uh, I see the color, and I hear all of you saying it's blue, but I believe the car is white." There's no place you can go with that. You're at a dead end in terms of talking with a person like that uh, on that particular subject. Um, so uh, a fool and a wise person are both selfish, uh, and they want the best for themselves. The difference between the two is that the fool goes for the immediate pleasure while the wise person recognizes and acts on the basis of the long-term consequences of his actions. So the wise person doesn't give in to his emotions, and thereby uh, he's able to protect himself. I mean, if you think about it, there are two things that you have in life. You have pain, and you have pleasure. And everyone that I know tries to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. I mean, we all do that. And the same is true with a wise person and a fool. The difference between them is how they go about doing it. Because the fool goes for the short-term pleasure, and he's driven by his emotions, while the wise person thinks the situation through, including all of the future consequences, 
and then makes a balanced decision. A gentleman I know had a, um, uh, he was a, a computer technologist of, of some sort uh, for a very large organization. And he had a son who I believe was around nine. Uh, pretty young fellow. And he went and had some money. I think it was like 30 or $40 that he got somehow. And he went and spent it on some toy that his dad knew would, you know, probably break the second time he used it and wouldn't bring him a whole lot of pleasure. But he let his son go ahead and buy it. And his son did, and it broke, you know, right away, or almost right away. And he said to his son, do you see, I mean, you invested in something that was a very short-term pleasure, uh, and, and, you know, now it's, it's broken. Well, I don't know exactly, I wasn't there when the conversation took place, but however he communicated it to his son, his son got it. And he said his son saved, all, uh, and, and I don't know, did chores or whatever, allowances and all the stuff, and saved for, I think it was like a year and a half, and bought himself, uh, uh, it was either a Macintosh PowerBook or a MacBook computer. And he said, my son now has the best computer in the house. And at nine or so years old, he saw the wisdom of a long-term consequence, saved for a long time, and got himself a piece of equipment that he would be able to use for you know quite a while, and it would bring him a lot of pleasure and be a good tool for him. So you can you can even teach this you know uh, to kids the idea of consequences and not making them wrong for their choices, but just showing them what the consequences are of various things they do, and then reminding them of that. Um, I uh, have teenage sons, and when we get into discussions about things that they are going to do, you know, one of the first questions that often comes up uh, that I uh, try to remind them of is, okay, what are the consequences if you do this versus you do that? And let them think that through as opposed to, you know, try to be an authoritarian figure and, and tell them what they should do. Okay, any questions about that particular aspect of this verse? Because I don't, I want to uh, get to the rest of it here too before we run out of time. Um, let me go back and catch um, one of the original questions. The words of the Proverbs of Solomon at the beginning. The proverb, the, those words, the Proverbs of Solomon are there to indicate a break, a break between sections uh, in the entire book. So uh, the, the sections of Proverbs before this uh, were uh, somewhat structured in a different way than the section that we're about to enter here in chapter 10. Uh, and that's uh, where the verses start to stand alone pretty much as uh, usually as individual cases. So those words are specifically there uh, to indicate a break. So now let's get to our last question, which is, what about this father-mother stuff? So I'd like to suggest to you, and I'm, I'm going to talk in broad generalities, individuals may differ, but that fathers and mothers have different relationships with their children. When a son is wise, his father will be glad because he's going to relate to his son's positive accomplishments. Uh, and another way to look at that in the realm of Torah learning is that a wise son will realize that he needs to be near his father for, for learning, for teaching. 
so he'll be with him in the place of learning, which would be a house of Torah study or in Torah classes or whatever. So his father will uh, see him and be with him and see his positive accomplishments, see his involvement in learning, and that involvement and seeing his, his wise accomplishments will make the father glad. However, when a son is foolish, a father will tend to psychologically distance himself from the son. He isn't as emotionally invested in the child as the mother is. As kids tend to grow up, fathers, and again, we're talking broad generalities here, but in terms of sort of prototypical father versus prototypical mother, father will tend to want to you know, kind of encourage the, the son to uh, get out in the world and you know, make a life of his own. Whereas the mother, who has a very different relationship than the father, uh, will, will have a, a stronger emotional attachment. I think it's generally harder for mothers to let go of sons than it is for uh, fathers as they get old and, and start moving out. Now, when a son is foolish, it's the mother who will then generally suffer the most because she maintains that close emotional relationship with her children even after they're grown. Uh, Dad tends to push them out of the nest, but mom's still emotionally uh, more strongly connected, generally more so than the father. So while she also may be quite glad if her son is wise, she will suffer the most uh, likely emotionally if the son is foolish, uh, whereas the father will emotionally distance himself and remain somewhat emotionally detached. Similarly, going around then to our, our idea about if the, if the son is with the father in Torah learning, uh, in the house of study, uh, then the father sees him, sees that his son is learning and is pleased with that. However, if the son doesn't hang around with his father and is not involved in the world of learning, he'll usually hang around the house. Uh, and his mother will see him hanging around the house wasting his time, which will bother her. So she's more aware kind of of the bad child, and the father uh, is more aware then of the wise child. So the contrast in this verse is between the wise son versus the foolish son and the resultant consequences uh, in terms of what the parents will uh, will feel around that. And Rena, I said, you ask, will this apply to daughters equally? Um, I would guess that it would be a bit different because as they grow up, the son will probably take a different course in terms of his learning and the relationship with his father than uh, a daughter will, but it could be similar. I think it depends on on which direction uh, the daughter goes. If the daughter gets involved in learning, uh, then you know the father may be uh, uh, maybe you know very very proud of that. Uh, I don't have daughters, but I can guess that a father's relationship with his daughter is a perhaps stronger emotional and protective attachment than a uh, father's relationship with his sons. Uh, so I think there might be a little bit of a, uh, of a different relationship there. Okay. 
And Rena, you're right. This class is conspicuously all-female, uh, and I appreciate that, that, uh, that you, are, you are all here. And I'm, I'm sure your fathers would be proud. So, any questions about that? And have we answered all the questions with regard to this verse? Anything left hanging in anyone's mind? Or are we good to go? Okay, Diane, good to go. And I'm not seeing comments from anyone else. So that's our, our introduction and our first uh, class in the study of Proverbs. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, these ideas, uh, to me, are just fascinating and, uh, as I say, over time, give us a lot of food for thought uh, about how to live a wise life and how to uh, choose the directions we go and make decisions in a practical way uh, that can uh, allow us to have the, the best life that we can have on this planet. The Torah, uh, you know, wants us to uh, live the best life, which is the Torah life, and the Torah life is about uh, learning and involvement and study and analysis and using our intellect uh, to make wise decisions. Uh, so, and uh, Rena, you're right. <laughs> you said Solomon knew he made his father proud. I uh, can't argue with that one. So thank you all very much. We'll be back next week, and if you get a chance uh, to spend a little bit of time with uh, Proverbs chapter 10 and uh, the next several verses, uh, we'll see how much ground we can cover. Until then, have a great week. Thanks very much.